Last uh, Wednesday night, we spent uh, probably the majority of our time talking about James, the Lord's brother, and how he was a skeptic about Jesus during Jesus' lifetime, but uh, then a leader, particularly in the Jerusalem church, for the years after that. So for somewhere around three decades, uh, he stepped into a leadership role. And the turn in James's life uh, seems to have occurred right after Jesus' death and resurrection. And uh, perhaps is centered on what Paul mentions in 1 Corinthians 15, that the Lord appeared to James. So however much of a skeptic he was after he had seen Jesus raised from the dead, he and other brothers and sisters are said to be there in Acts chapter 1 when the 120 are gathering in Jerusalem. And from that time forward, he's a dedicated follower of Christ and he's a leader in the Jerusalem church. Um, his book may be one of the earliest ones in the New Testament. We know that James died about A.D. 62, so roughly 30 years after uh, Jesus' death. James uh, was put to death by a high priest during a time when it was sort of interim between governors in Palestine. And the high priest saw this as an opportunity to do some things he wanted to do, but the governor apparently was not allowing him to do. And that included uh, putting some uh, Christians to death, among whom the most prominent was James, the Lord's brother. Uh, when the next governor got installed, he uninstalled the high priest, and, and that was one of the issues over which he did that. So we have, we have about a 30-year span for James's work as a leader in the Jerusalem church. And this book could have been written... Uh, anywhere across that 30-year span. The, the, the most concrete suggestion that is made by some uh, relies primarily on the first verse. And that is, in the first verse, it says, uh, James, the servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations. In Acts chapter 7, right after Stephen was put to death, we're told that uh, brothers and sisters from Jerusalem were scattered, they were dispersed. And some suggest that uh, it was that event and the aftermath of that event that shortly after that he writes this book to those Jewish Christians from the area of Jerusalem and Judea who were now uh, scattered into other nations. And that may be accurate, I'm not sure it makes a great deal of difference in how we might interpret different parts of the book, whether it was written then or whether it was written at a later point during James' life, uh, perhaps sometime during the 50s. The last part of last week, uh, we looked at the Bible Project film that sort of lays out the structure and purpose of the book of James. And I mentioned then that we'll look at it again, and we will. We're not going to look at it tonight. And we're probably never going to look at it at the beginning of class. Because I realized, as it, it, was a, it was near the end of class last week, which was fine, but I realized I was watching it. It's so intense and so fast that if you actually pay attention to it, after that eight minutes, you're going to be ready to go home. 
and uh, we're not ready to go home yet. So when we do show it, we're going to show it during the latter part of class rather than at the beginning. If you want to see it on your own, and I would encourage you to do that, you go to the Bible Project, and it is a great website if you're not familiar with it. And uh, they, they have a professional anima animator and a very good Bible scholar who have kind of combined together. And one of the things that they've done is for every book in the Old and New Testament, they have created an overview of that book. And by and large, they're extraordinarily good. So I encourage you to go look at that at the Bible Project website. They suggested that the book of James is kin to wisdom literature like the book of Proverbs. And it seems to be when you look at it, it's not short one verse things like a lot of Proverbs is. But if you think about Proverbs, the first eight chapters, if you just pick out any one of them and start reading through it, they're connected. They have a flow of thought. In fact, they probably have more of a flow of thought than James does. One of the issues with James has been kind of determining a flow of thought. This, this looks like kind of the accumulated wisdom of James gathered into a book. The thing that's most often said about its structure that, that kind of makes sense to me, and I, I think a majority, is that the first chapter... Uh, where it's usually two or three verse, little short, pithy sections, is sort of an index to the rest of the book, to chapters two through five. And in chapters two through five, there are generally little short treatments of different subjects that range from five or six verses up to 13 at the most, up to about uh, half a chapter. And so uh, they, they suggest on the Bible project that there are 12 of those. They're somewhere close to that. It depends upon uh, kind of what verses you put together. And we'll see some of that as, as we look tonight, what you consider a paragraph, a flow of thought, and, and what you don't, how you, how you carve things up. So what we're going to do in going through the book of James, I really don't think the six weeks that we have left starting tonight is uh, sufficient for us to go verse by verse through the book of James. And I'm not sure you would enjoy that as well anyway. And so what we're going to do is we're going to sort of approach it topically, but we're going to use the first chapter uh, for that. So we'll look at a little section in the first chapter and then we'll jump. Uh, to uh, a longer essay that that one kind of brings us to or points to out of the other parts of the book. And so we're going to start tonight with verses uh, 2 through 4 and 3 through 5, and we're just going to kind of see uh, how far we get. Um, looking at verses 2 through 4, and uh, I'll be reading from uh, the newer NIV. I think a lot of people in here probably have a new international version. There are a good many other versions, hopefully, floating around the class as well. And we might occasionally talk about the differences between some of them. But uh, there, is, there are some differences between the 2011 NIV and the 1984 NIV. And if you don't know which one you have, you can look in the front of your Bible. 
so they redid it in 2011. If you don't have a 2011 NIV, you haven't bought one in the last five or six years uh, because the 1984s pretty quickly went off the market. But you may have that old one that you've had for, you know, since the 80s, and you've got it underlined and worked on, and you don't want that thing to go anywhere. Start with verse 2. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance, or some translations will say steadfastness. Let perseverance or steadfastness finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Consider it pure joy when you encounter various trials. How does that strike you? You feel good about that? You do that all the time? You know, so much of life you learn more from your mistakes than you do from your successes. So. You do. And often you learn from, and, and he doesn't specify what kind of trials are, are going on here so we can imagine a wide range of things, a wide range of things that, uh, you know, if we could just start around the room and say, what's been a real trial for you or for your family? we'd come up with a wide range of different things that had gone on or were going on right now uh, in our lives. And, and yeah, Pat's right that, that we often gain more from that, but we usually don't consider it pure joy. <laughs> that, doesn't, that doesn't work very well for most of us, it seems like, uh, in terms of how we face it at the time. But let's talk about that a little bit. Um, in the long run, do you often look back and say, well, I, I see some good that came out of that? Maybe in yourself, maybe in your personal development, maybe in somebody else's, maybe in a family member's personal development, maybe in their spirituality. In the rearview yeah. mirror. In the rearview mirror. In yeah. In this room are old enough to be able to do that. But at the time when you're going through it, I, I cannot say I've ever stood in the hospital with family or friends and said, oh, this is just pure joy. That's a joyful occasion. I, that, that's very difficult. Very difficult. It is extraordinary, isn't it? I mean, to, to suggest that. Yes, sir. Can you explain a little bit on the difference between joy and happiness? I, you know, I, I would see a difference, and, and I think that's one place that we ought to go and talk about. Is there, you know, uh, the word joy or the word peace or the word contentment? Peace or contentment probably are easier than joy. But any of those words might be better here than happiness. You know, be happy when you experience various trials might not be. Uh, I never have liked the occasional translation that comes out of the Beatitudes of Jesus where they say, 
Happy is the one who, because it just doesn't seem to me to ring true, they can be blessed, they could have peace facing a difficult situation, they could have contentment, but happy is a tough word. Joy is a little close to it for me to be totally easy with. I think, James, you're, you're putting this pretty strong at this place. Easier to look back. We've been studying Joseph on Sunday mornings in, uh, in our Bible class. And I don't think Joseph, when he was in that cistern, said, ain't this great? <laughs> I doubt he said that when he went to the prison. And you would doubt that he thought very highly of the guy that he uh, interpreted his dream and he was supposed to go help him get out of prison. And he fooled around for two years and didn't do anything. Tito? You know, when I look at happiness, I think happiness, for the most part, depends on the circumstance. But joy is like something you have to grow into. Kind of like you first come into the church. It, it takes time before you get to a point where a lot of this makes sense to you uh, or, or to any of us. So, uh, like when I look, look at joy, it's like you get to a point in your life that you look at difficulties as real opportunities to get better, yes, to draw closer to God. Yeah. And that's, I mean, Paul even gets this point in his letters where he says that he would like to share in not just Christ's resurrection, but also in his crucifixion, in his sufferings. Why would Paul say anything like that? Have you ever had a thought like that? Have you ever told the Lord, I'd like to share in Jesus' sufferings? I, I see a nod or two, but I don't see a lot of this going on. Part of it's because we're afraid that what we pray for we'll get, right? And, and often, uh, you know, we even get reluctant to pray for patience. Because the Lord has funny ways of teaching patience. Ways that we don't want to have anything to do with. So it's a lot of times you think, well, I don't want to ask for that virtue because I'm afraid of how I'll, what I'll go through to get there. Yeah. You look at the, the structure of the sentence, it's a, it's a kind of an active command that something you have it to is. do. He says, he says, consider it joy. You can't just, it doesn't just happen. You have to make a decision. Make a choice. You've got to make a decision that I'm going to put this construct on this situation. It's, it looks bad, it is bad, but I'm going to look at God's perspective. I'm going to make a choice, and I'm going to look at it that way. And in so doing, you, uh, you are making a change within also. Your emotions begin to follow, follow that. Good. I, I think that's it's great. And that's right. It, it is a command. And the, the verb that is used here is put in the form we call an imperative or command. And uh, we talked about last week, there's a lot of them. There's like 55 of them in this 
55-chapter book. I don't know if I had that right that last week, but I got it right this week. I know there's 55 on it. Uh, that we're given commands to do things like consider it joy. LaWanna? My version says consider it an opportunity for great joy. And oh, that's that interesting. Because, you know, are you going to take that, are you going to accept that opportunity? Yeah. You know, I mean, it's, what do you do with that? Are you going to, you should consider it an opportunity, yes. Yeah. But. Yeah, it's, and that, that's obviously a less literal translation. If you got like. Uh, it's the New Living. The New Living. I was going to ask if, if it was the NLT, the New Living, because a lot of times they try to uh, be a bit interpretive in their translation. Just straight literal, it's considerate pure joy, um, but an opportunity for joy. Jerry? I think the bottom line is, based on the comments I'm hearing here, is that you can have joy, but not necessarily be happy at the same time. Yeah. And we sometimes use those terms interchangeably, but I think that's what I think that's what we're trying to say. You can um, you can have joy and at the same time be in pain, or joy and at the same time be very saddened by something that's going on in your life or in the life of someone very close to you. Yeah. And, and he says that the reason you should consider it joy is because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance, or you may have steadfastness, or does anybody have something else? What? Endurance. Endurance, steadfastness, perseverance. Um, and he, he goes on to say that we need to let perseverance finish its work so that we can be mature and complete and not lacking in anything. Okay, so you could have patience. You could have steadfastness, you could have perseverance, you could have endurance. I like the word steadfastness, but it, it's not a slam dunk that that's right. I think any of those four words could be used in, uh, in translating this. Probably King James has patience. Is that right, Becky? Yeah, I thought it did, because it's like you're going to talk about the patience of Job. And one reason that the NIV because this is the same word we're going to see over in chapter 5 to say, look at the blank, steadfastness, endurance, perseverance, patience of Job. It's going to be the same word. And the, the NIV would like to translate it the same if they can, and it just kind of sticks in their throat a little bit to say the patience of Job. I know that's what the King James says, and it's what I grew up with. And we talked about it in Bible classes, too. We said, well, he didn't look very patient to me. Uh, because steadfastness, you can see steadfastness. You can see perseverance in faith. I mean, he never lost his faith. He always stayed. In fact, he, he repeatedly said, you know, that y'all are wrong about what you think God's doing here. He can't be doing that. He, he was always faithful to God, 
But patient, I'm not so sure about that with his demands of, God, I wish you'd come right down here right now and tell me what's wrong. Tell me, tell me why you're treating me this way and so forth. Um, so I, I think they're trying to, to get that, whatever Job had and this, matched to each other. So let, let's talk about our children or our grandchildren. What we want to do is protect them from trials and testing, right? We want to make everything smooth. In my extended family, uh, one of the young men was arrested in Georgia and it, his parents had enough gumption to say, let him stay in jail for a while. His grandparents didn't. They sent the money down to get him out right away. He's in jail now. He's been there about a year. He would have been better off to spend a few days. Now, I'm not saying that would have fixed it, but it wouldn't have hurt. <laughs> but we want to rescue our kids from every trial of every kind. And we don't want to disappoint them. Boy, the other day when uh, uh, Sam Lowe's son, what's his name? Josh. 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 When Josh got up and told us that story in the Life Center about how his dad... Didn't give him anything for Christmas one year. I thought there's not an American parent in this room that would have considered that. And there's not an American kid in this room that wouldn't have reacted in a horrible fashion. I don't know what the Lowe's, the Leos did. But he was using a technique we don't use, right? We protect we make everything work out. If they get in trouble, we pay for it. We don't want them to have to work and pay for it. Unfortunately. So, I, we, we kind of skirt what's going on here in these verses, right? For, for raising our kids. And we'd like to skirt it for ourselves. And that's why I don't pray for patience. Because I don't like the way I, I've prayed some of those things in the past and wasn't too happy with the way it worked out. Yes, sir. Um, those, all those words you used, patience or perseverance, steadfastness, endurance, those all in my mind th seem to require an action where patience is more kind of just waiting on somebody else to do something. That's that's, that's probably, yeah. Yeah, the notion of steadfastness is kind of like a more positive uh, something that you do as opposed to just putting up with something and letting it go on and not fussing too much about it, which is what patience sounds like to us a lot of times. Yeah. Let's look over at uh, chapter 5. And... I don't want to read this whole section. I, I think a good section that this points to, 
Well, I am going to read the whole section, but I'm going to tell you what I don't want to discuss. And we'll just skip that part. Uh, it, it points to verses 7 through 11, where this notion of patience, of endurance, of steadfastness comes up again. Um, be patient then, brothers and sisters. Now, that is not the same word. It's not a verb form of the same word for steadfastness or endurance or patience that was used earlier. He is going to use the same word in this section, but this is a little different word, and so the, the NIV translates it, be patient until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crops, patiently waiting for autumn and spring rains. You too be patient, and again, it's not that same word, and stand firm because the Lord's coming is near. Don't grumble against one another, brothers and sisters, or you will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. Okay, what I don't want to discuss here is the whole business of when they expected the Lord to return and all that, because I think it sidetracks us from the main point that we're trying to drive home to talk about the importance of patience or endurance and it's really brought out well in the next part of this. Brothers and sisters, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, and again, that's not the same word either, the same Greek word that's used over in chapter 1. But it's related. It's close. It's the same kind of word, but it's not exactly the same word. Uh, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke the name of the Lord. As you know, we count as blessed those who have persevered. This is a verb form of the same word that we saw earlier, perseverance or stead. Those who have been steadfast, those who have persevered. You have heard of Job's patience or perseverance or steadfastness or endurance. This is the same word that we've been talking about back in chapter 1. And I'm seeing what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. So here he goes further down the road of talking about the importance of patience and the importance of steadfastness, which are related ideas or perseverance. And he pulls out a couple of Old Testament examples the example of the prophets uh, who endured a great deal and were steadfast in persevering, doing what the Lord wanted them to do and saying what the Lord wanted them to say. And then the uh, steadfastness or perseverance or patience, as the King James would have it, of Job. And what he points out there is that things eventually change for Job. As he says, and you have seen what the Lord finally brought about. And I think he means in that story. If you look back at the end of the story of Job, the Lord is full of compassion and mercy. So, uh, before we go to the next section, anything else you want to say about the importance of how we look at trials and difficulties in our life and how that builds, can build endurance 
or steadfastness to the Lord and how it can help us to be mature. And that, that's one of the problems, of course, with the way we raise kids and the way we want God to raise us is that it doesn't produce much maturity if you never have any adversity. Everything always goes great. Everything's always taken care of. You don't develop to be a mature person. You could probably argue that can't happen without some trials. I just keep thinking if everything were so good here, we wouldn't have heaven to look forward to. Yeah. If it, yeah. If it were perfect. If everything were perfect here. Mm -hmm. And if everything were perfect here, we wouldn't, we'd be a bunch of immature brats. And I, from the Lord's point of view, we probably are anyway. He probably looks down and says, he's 66 years old and he had not learned squat. <laughs> yes. So are the same words used in James, the same thing in Hebrews 12, where he's talking about endure uh, hardship as discipline, God's treating you as sons, Hebrews 12, 7. Yeah, let's take a look. <clears throat> In Hebrews 12 and 7. Uh, yes, the word for endurance there is a verb form of the same word. I cheated and brought a Bible that has English on one side and Greek on the other. So it is the same word. Uh, you endure for the purpose of discipline. And that word endure or persevere or be steadfast is a verb form of the same word. And he goes on to say basically the kind of thing we've been talking about. God is treating us at like we were his children. And you discipline your children to create maturity and to bring them to be the kind of person you want them to be. Yeah. Hebrews says the same thing. Hey, Ellen, I can almost be okay under this passage or make myself okay if we define trials a little more not so, like I go to work and I got to be nice to the boss. That's a trial. I got to finish this. That's a trial. And if those were the trials, It'd be okay with it. I don't think that's going to work, do you? <laughs> I don't think that's going to work. I think we're going to have to think of some much more difficult things in our lives. And boy, if, if we could just pick this group up and drop us into India and we could explain to them our terrible trials, they would laugh and say, you are a bunch of children. The people that he was writing this to, the 12 tribes scattered about what was going on in their lives. If it, the, the only possibility that we might have something that kind of helps out here is if, if they are the ones who were scattered right after the stoning of Stephen. And so they've been scattered due to persecution and they're trying to settle in other places where people don't like them and they've been uprooted. Uh, so that may very well be the case. It, it kind of depends on the timing and whether, whether verse 1 is enough to convince you that that is the right timing to this. 
that be the kind of trials they were enduring. But all the people of that time period, you know, lived without electricity and running water and air conditioning and heat and, well, they would have fires but uh, for heat, but uh, they lived without all the modern conveniences that we have, lived rough lives. That's it. Yeah, they didn't have to put up with their cell phones not working and the internet not coming through and all that stuff. Okay, let's look at verses 5 and following in our last few minutes. And this is an interesting question about interpretation and translations. How many of you have verses 5 through 8 as a new paragraph? Okay, we only got one hand, two hands, three, four, five. How many of you have it then as the same paragraph? Nearly everybody? It, it really changes it to some degree, I think, when you look at this. So if you think of this as in the same paragraph and it just continues, which is what I have in the uh, NIV, if any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God who gives generally to all without finding fault and it will be given to you. And it sounds like it's talking about the wisdom to consider trials joy and to develop endurance and steadfastness and to become mature. So if you stick it in that same paragraph, then it sounds like that first couple of sentences governs, you know, it, you could say, okay, you can pull it away and say, we're, we can do this about any wisdom. But uh, right there in that same paragraph, it sounds like it's, it's continuing that thought. But if you break it away and make it a new paragraph, it sounds more like, okay, James has shifted to a new thought now. And he does that in the book a number of times. And so we're not exactly sure whether... This is a continuation of the thought of verses 2 through 4, or whether it's a new thought. Uh, if any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt, because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all they do. So the, the first part of this is really encouraging. It says, you know, if you're facing trials and you have a difficulty with it, if you think of it as flowing out that, you can ask God for, for wisdom and God's generous and he'll give it to you. The second part's not as comforting, right? Anybody in here doubt? You may not want to raise your hand really high, but <clears throat> I know in your heart of hearts you do from time to time. And, and there, there's sort of a strange issue here in that we would also think, well, what are we talking about doubting? Because there, there are two things we could doubt here. One is we could doubt God is, 
we could doubt God, doubt he is strong enough or doubt he cares enough. The others we can doubt ourselves and doubt that we're, that we know what we ought to get. That we're, you know, won't you buy me a Mercedes Benz uh, or whatever it is that we're asking for might not be the thing. In fact, what we're usually going to say is get me out of this trial. And that may not be the answer that would be right. And it may be that you'd be better off if he didn't get you out of this trial. You'd be better off or maybe one of your relatives would be better off or one of your closest friends would be better off or maybe even society would be better off if he didn't get you out of this trial. And you can't see that from your point of view. And so the doubt could be self-doubt. And I, I would think that self-doubt's probably okay. Doubt of God's another matter. When we doubt that He's powerful enough or that He cares enough. And unfortunately, I think we could probably go around and all of us could, could confess that it's not only ourselves we doubt sometimes. That we also doubt God. And we don't like being called double-minded. But we say we don't doubt him, but then we do. And so then we, we have this thing going on in our head, this double-mindedness that's interfering with the fulfillment of our request. In this case, most especially a request for wisdom. I think if, if I were the translators trying to decide what to do here, I'd just make one paragraph from verse 2 all the way through to verse 8 instead of two paragraphs. But, you know, in our, and most of the translations we have in the room decide to do that, but some of them decide to make it two paragraphs. If you make it two paragraphs and you sort of pause... And it's like you're shifting thoughts, then it could be a broader wisdom in some other way. It's still a request for wisdom, basically. But I, I kind of think it probably applies to wisdom to deal with the trial. Jesus once asked a man, do you believe? And the man said, I believe. Help my unbelief. And that makes me think, you know, in the context of the whole Bible, this uh, this double-minded man, unstable in all his ways, is a special category of doubter. That uh, uh, that goes beyond, you know, our our momentary, our usual momentary doubt. Yeah. Yeah, and that, that's a good point. And, and I would certainly feel better at that point. I'd be better thinking, okay, well, I'm not a double-minded man, unstable in all my ways because I have some doubts. Uh, but rather, that's a stronger category. And Jesus blessed that man who expressed his doubts. Yeah, he did. And that, I, lo I love that verse. I believe, help my unbelief. And I've, I've said it, I've prayed it. 
I've fought it on numerous occasions. Yeah, Chris. And yeah. find answers. And I know John Ortberg wrote a book about faith and doubt. And just the whole, it's like you take your faith seriously when you're really trying to understand. You're really, you're working on those doubts. You're learning more. You're. Yeah. Uh, I, I absolutely think that. And. Part of what I do day after day, walk into classes and create doubt in students' minds <laughs> and then try to lead them through it to a stronger, more mature kind of place. Yes, Timmy. Um, you're talking about trials of tribulation. It's hard for me to think that I, I, I will have joy from, from that situation. But I think about, maybe that's analogous to a positive mental out, outlook. And that, in turn, would apply to asking for genuine wisdom or more wisdom in order that we would gain more from that trial or tribulation. Absolutely. I think that's right. Let's, uh, we just got a few more minutes. Let's turn over to chapter five again. And uh, there, there's a whole section about the prayer of faith that uh, I would presume you're familiar with. It begins about verse 13. But for our sake right now, let's, let's just focus on the end of that section down uh, in the last part of verse 16 through verse 18. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Elijah was a human being, even as we are. He prayed earnestly that it wouldn't rain and didn't rain in the land for three and a half years. And again he prayed, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced its crop. So just like that earlier part of chapter 5 that verses 2 to 4 seems to point us to, verses 7 to 11, here in verses 13 to 18 in chapter 5, he turns again to the Old Testament, uh, this time not to the prophets in general and to Job, but this time to Elijah, to a really uh, spectacular case. And, and I, I suppose in a lot of ways when we read that story in the Old Testament, we tend to think, well, God wanted to stop the rain and God wanted to bring the rain back and Elijah's prayer didn't have anything to do with it. But that, that isn't what James says. James says that Elijah was a righteous man. He was a faithful man. He was presumably not a double-minded man man, although sometimes he was, wasn't he? When he says, I'm only one and I'm up there suffering. You haven't done right by me. Um, at that point, he sounds like a double-minded man, but he's a righteous, faithful man who prays and stops. We could use him in the Carolinas, not for three and a half years, but uh, for a little while. We could use him really soon. Uh, 
So the, the illustration is of a faithful, righteous man who prays. And I, uh, the Lord listens to a wide variety of prayers. I'm confident He doesn't only listen to faithful, righteous Christians' prayers, but there is a special place for the righteous and for those who are not double-minded, those who are faithful and righteous and believing that God can do it and wants to do what is best for us. And that even sometimes we don't get the answer that we want, that might be best. Uh, one thing that bothers me sometimes when we're talking about this subject is it sounds like we always expect it to be best for us, and I don't think that's necessarily God's view. I, I don't think if he, if he lets me go through some terrible trial or I, I end up in, in something awful, I don't think it's necessarily for me to grow and become a better person. It might be for other people. Might be people close to me. Might not even be people close to me. Um, but, but he has his reasons why he allows the things that he allows. But it's awfully hard for us to agree, to believe that sometimes. That's yes, ma'am. That's a great point because it's not about us. We have such a tendency to think it's about me, and it's really not. It's about God and God yeah. being glorified through whatever it is we're going through. That's just a simple Yeah. So I'd rather think it was otherwise. <laughs> I'd rather think that ultimately everything that I might go through was for me, but it may not be for me. Yeah, Luana? There's a saying that I really like, um, and it goes something like this. If, if you as a child of God, if God tells you as his child, no, it's because he has a greater yes in mind. Yeah. That's the only reason he's going to tell you no, because you're his child. Yeah. And that, that, the one thing I guess I want to emphasize is that that greater yes may not be for you. Yes. It might be for your child or your grandchild or your husband or your brother or your sister or somebody that doesn't even know you, but that learns about what's happened and that somehow you're an example of faith to them or... They learned something about life by what you suffered. One of the worst, most absurd things that I know of that's going on right now, and you see it every night on the news, and some of you know it has a big Harding family connection, and some of you don't, is Botham John. And uh, Botham John was killed in a in ridiculous circumstances in the area of Dallas. He was a very popular student at uh, Harding and uh, is very widely known by the, the people. I, I have several people in my classes who knew both of them very well. A very fine young man. And you just think that there can't be any reason for the John family or for anybody connected. Somehow, there can be something good come out of it, that God can work out of it. 
I, would, I wouldn't say that at all if I was sitting talking to the Jean family. I know, I know I would not. But I know that we all need to be prepared. We need to be prepared because all of us are going to have something terrible happen to us or to somebody we're close to. All of us are. If you haven't already, you will. Most of us are old enough to have been around that block a little bit. Uh, but if you don't prepare when it's not here yet, then you may not react with steadfastness. And you certainly won't react with joy. And you may not gain the maturity that you can gain from it. Well, thank you very much. And we'll, we'll come back to this in a week and progress on through James.